Slamming the door shut. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio, and people have missed the show, Jeremy. You know, usually we get to the end of the show, and I say, that's enough show, right? People are nowhere close to enough show right now. They're on a show deficit, so this might have to go a little bit long. We might have to get, we got to give people a show surplus right now because they missed us over the holidays. I I go back and forth on this, whether we should do shows that people can kind of listen to on Thanksgiving or through the Christmas break or whatever. And uh, you know what, you know what side of the argument wins is no, I'm not doing that. And you don't need to do it either. (laughs) We, we have given people so much show this year and I'm thankful for the listeners. Did you see uh, that on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter is where I saw it. People are now starting to share their Spotify wrapped for the year. Yep. That's where Spotify says, hey, you've listened to this and you've listened to that. We're the number one show in so many people's hearts. And you can, and that's reflected in the numbers. And people are happily sharing that. And by the way, you can tag us at Scott Braddock, at Jeremy S. Wallace, when you share that. We just love to see it. So what happened on vouchers, uh, Jeremy? Were you surprised by any of that? It, it happened the day after the last show that we did. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and, and and despite like you know, you just kept feeling like maybe is this going to be different? Is this going to be somehow different than what we thought? And like ultimately, it's I just keep comparing to that Lucy and the football thing. You know, mm-hmm. nope, Charlie Brown it up on his back once again. <laughs> you know who was not surprised at all? Listeners of the show were not surprised, or if people follow us on social media, or they read the Quorum Report, or read your work in the Houston Chronicle, they were not surprised. Let me prove it to you. Maybe we knew what we were talking about a few days before the vote in the Texas House on school vouchers, which we're going to go through the whole debate in just a second. But a few days before it, I was on KSAT 12 News in San Antonio. And here's what I said. When that bill comes to the floor, whether it's the Senate proposal or the House proposal, you may see an amendment offered, proposal made, to strip vouchers out of that bill and just pass something that offers more money for public schools around the state. And I think if an amendment like that is offered, on the floor of the House, there are probably the votes to adopt that. Wow. And But then there's no guarantee that the Senate would pass it or the governor would right. sign it. Uh, it. And we're right where we were before. That's right. Exactly. Right where we were before, Jeremy. So how did all this unfold? We did know that that amendment would be offered to take the school vouchers out of this and that the vote would probably be about the same as it was earlier in the year when the House voted to prohibit tax dollars from flowing to school vouchers. Remember, uh, it's sort of a traditional amendment that's offered during the budget, and I have both of them right here. Of course, I'm always on the House floor checking things out. You're there a lot, too. And you can verify for people that I'm holding up the actual vote sheets from the House, one from April, one from a couple weeks ago. The one in April, and and I just want to make this point because I've heard so many people say that they felt that the governor was maybe moving the needle on this. And you were at some events, right, where he was telling people that the the House members were getting the message and maybe they were coming his direction, right? Didn't he say a version of that? He specifically told me it was having an impact and he expected that, you know, people were going to start voting for it. It's like, and remember, you know, we had that whole clip, you know, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now, where he said they were on the one yard line and they thought they were going to get this thing through. Yeah. Okay. So here was the vote in April. This is April 6th. It wasn't April 1st. I could have made an April Fool's joke. Um, the vote was 86 to 52 
in favor of prohibiting school vouchers. So 86, keep that number in mind. On November 17th, all these months later, and after the governor has been campaigning for this for almost an entire year while the legislature's been uh, mostly in session during that entire time, the vote to take school vouchers out of the big education package was 84 to 63. So it's 86 in April and then against school vouchers and then 84 against school vouchers in November. Two votes different. After all of that, after all of the campaigning, after all the events, going to all the Christian academies and, you know, talking to uh, Texans all over the place, putting out all those videos. We played a lot of the audio of that where the governor made it look like sort of a pep rally for school yep. choice and parental empowerment and all of that effort. And the vote's only two votes different. So let's listen to how this unfolded. Representative John Rainey, who is a retiring Republican from Bryan College Station. You know, he's the owner of the Aggie bookstore there. He's sort of a legend in uh in the Brazos Valley. He served uh, six terms in the House, and he was the one to propose taking vouchers out of the big education bill. I support everything with one exception, the creation of ESAs or vouchers. I have served six terms in the House, and never before have I come to drastically change a colleague's bill. I am by no means a public education expert, but I believe in my heart that using taxpayer dollars to fund an entitlement program is not conservative and it's bad public policy. Jeremy, I was reminded that the fact that someone is not an expert on the subject matter has never prevented anybody from being successful in the Texas legislature when it comes to <laughs> you know passing something, you know, getting a getting a bill done or passing an amendment or something like that. This next part is pretty important. The governor's been saying that he wants school choice for all of the K through 12 students in Texas, right? I mean, all, the nearly 6 million uh, students all need to have access to this. But legislators have been trying to narrowly tailor this in a way that they thought they could maybe get through you know, the Texas House. And that includes the Senate author, uh, Brandon Creighton, who's the education chairman in the, in the Senate. He had said, hey, let's just do $500 million, which in Texas, that's you know, for our quarter trillion dollar or more than $300 billion budget this time around, they call that budget dust. When you have amounts that are that small, quote unquote, 500 million, that would be for tens of thousands of students, not for the 6 million students in public education. Well, Rainey pointed out that that's not really what's going to happen here, that, that you would only have this small amount of kids who would get vouchers. Eventually, the leadership would get their way and the cost would grow exponentially. It is the repeated goal of the state's leadership to provide what they call choice, whether through vouchers or ESAs, to all parents. Therefore, the limitations in HB 1 don't really matter. The value of the proposed ESA vouchers in HB 1 is $10,500 per student. The eventual cost to state taxpayers when the leadership's goal is achieved, would be $21 billion per biennium. Representative Brian Harrison, who supports vouchers, confronted Representative Glenn Rogers, who's against vouchers. And Rogers was at the front microphone in the House. He was defending the Rainey Amendment and saying, this is what we need to do, is take these vouchers out of this. Harrison from Waxahachie argues that uh, public schools sometimes 
deny students when they try to transfer from a different district if they're trying to do choice in that fashion. So what about the parent who has a child in a failing school district that wants to transfer, has applied to transfer, and the public school has denied that transfer? What would you say what, to that What parent? about the child that wants to go to private school and they won't accept that child in the private school? Why would that parent be talking to a private school in the first place? Because they're, if they're looking for an alternative. Why would they be doing that? Because, I mean, my, I have one child that's been to private school for two years. She's been to public school. We homeschooled her one year when she was in gymnastics. I have nothing against private schools or homeschools. I just have a problem with taking taxpayer dollars and sending it to private schools with no accountability. And basically, there's only two ways you can have a voucher system ultimately. You either defund public schools or you raise taxes. That's the key, Jeremy. I think that the the real um, sort of distorting factor about this discussion this year is that Texas has so much money expected to be in the bank over the next two years, right? So when Harrison says that you don't, ha and you know, we'll get to Chairman Buckley in just a little bit, but when any of those guys who support this proposal, when they say that you can do both, well, that's true. You can do both now, but what's going to happen in two years, four years, six years, uh, eight years from now, let's say we have a recession. There are you know different uh, you know factors that we're looking at uh, you know economically right now that tell us that we might see some bumpy road ahead for the economy. It hasn't been the best economy, but Texas has done pretty well, and that's why we have that's part of why we have so much extra money in the bank. We should also say one reason we have a lot of extra money is because so much federal money was sent down to Texas during COVID. That's part of why we have this giant surplus. Um, but in the lean years, we know, and the people in public education know, and their supporters know that in 2011 as the prime example, the first thing that got the most drastic cuts when there was a tough budget year was public education. Yeah, and the concept you hear a lot from a lot of people supporting vouchers is that we're going to hold public schools harmless. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't, home, you can't hold them harmless unless you're taking money from someplace to do it. It's like, right, you have to backfill that somewhere. It's like, you know, because like, what's different from about this, it's like, you know, remember they used to do that argument where the money should follow the parent or, or should follow the student. And in this case, what they've tried to do is try to find some way to like, okay, we'll have money follow the kid, but we're going to backfill it with the school. So you, mm -hmm. it, you know, eventually paying twice as much for each student who does decide to take an ESA. You're going to pay right. the public school for them, uh -huh. but you're also going to let money go to the private school. So that's in of its on its surface requires more money as like uh -huh. than what the, is currently going to the system. So yeah, you're right on mark in that like when we go into a normal budget process or you know, man, let's hope we don't hit a recession, you know, it's like then what happens? Then right. like what is the first thing to go? The money going to a school for not having a kid? Of course, that's the first thing to go. Billions of dollars were cut from public ed more than a decade ago after we had the Great Recession across the United States. And the easy way to think about it, I may have said it this way on the show before, if a certain um, amount of money for something does not go into the Texas Constitution, then they can just change it later whenever they want. Right? If, they, if they put a whole bunch of money into public ed right now, but they don't do it through a constitutional amendment where people vote on it, then it's not permanent. Right. And so and so, again, you get into a situation where you're making those cuts. So that's where the supporters of this really run into a roadblock with some of those very conservative rural Republicans. Remember, they're not just looking out for their communities. They're also just straight up conservatives. You heard what Rainey said. He said this is too expensive. 
Yep. That's an old school conservative argument. We're spending too much money. What he said at the beginning of that was we're spending taxpayer dollars on an entitlement program. Yep. And when have conservatives ever been for that? Yeah, I love the fact that he did that, right? You know, that's like, you know, because you feel for guys like Rainey, who people are saying they're not conservative because they're not supporting this. And I and like that was a counterpunch basically on his part going, well, y'all are supporting an entitlement program. You know, right. that's not very conservative to me. You know, it's like and you, it just kind of like it kind of goes to this, that, that one thematic that we've had all year where it's like Republican run Republican like attacks where you try to mm-hmm. assess somebody's conservative credentials not being as conservative as yours. And it's like and so how do you do it in this case? Like it was, you know, to have somebody who doesn't support the school voucher program to actually fight back a little bit and say, hey, wait a minute, we are conservative. You're the one who's not being conservative. Yeah. So if these guys lose on the budget argument, then the arguments go in all kinds of other directions. Here's an example. Representative Briscoe Kane from Harris County and uh, Harrison, once again, from Ellis County, who was trying to sort of be the point man for the pro-voucher side on this. Um, uh, Representatives Kane and Harrison start talking about the FBI going after parents, um, you know, who had some parents who had questioned what was going on. Uh, at different school board meetings around the country. Representative, I'm so glad you mentioned those teacher unions. Let's discuss that. Can you talk to me about what they called parents? Is there anything? What do the teacher unions like Randy Weingarten think? It's well known. It's it's unfortunate. It's it's embarrassing. It's disgusting. That the teacher unions in this country were, in fact, behind a coordinated effort at the highest levels of our government to have the White House weaponize the FBI against parents who had done nothing more than have the audacity to show up and speak out against what was happening at school board meetings. I feel like we're striking a chord here, Mr. Harrison. It's getting really, really loud over my right ear. Some some people are upset about the primary funders of their campaigns and why they're here against it. Let's talk about funding. American Federation for Teachers, 99.97% of total contributions goes to which party? That goes to the Democrat Party, Representative. Thank you, sir. Members, when By you vote way, for this amendment, I need you to know who you were aligning with. You will be aligning with the American Federation for Teachers, those who call parents what, Mr. Harrison? Uh, they call them uh, criminals domestic and terrorists. domestic terrorists. Now, that is a gross misrepresentation of what happened, of course. There were some people who were showing up at uh, some school board meetings uh, and were acting in just absolutely insane ways, not the way that the average parent shows up and talks to school boards. Um, And you did have uh, some folks who were concerned about that and said that, hey, maybe law enforcement ought to be on the lookout for people who might become violent at some of these school board meetings. Remember what was happening. People were very upset about things that were happening during COVID was driving a lot of that, and people were very angry. And and I get it. Um, and of course, people were worried about about public safety. That aside, for just a second, if 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 that wasn't sort of ridiculous enough, let me introduce you to Representative Jared Patterson, who, by the way, today announced he's not going to be running for the Texas Senate. He had said he might do that. Now he's not going to. Patterson also a school voucher supporter, tried to argue that the real reason to have school choice is that some public schools, and this, this is, I thought this debate was over with back in 2017. He said that some public schools will allow boys into girls' rooms, and so you need to allow for parents to get their kids out of that school. If there is a school that allows boys into the girls' restroom, or boys into the locker room, or the showers, and I don't agree with that policy, should I not be given the opportunity 
for an education savings account to send my child to a different school. Mr. Rennie, these are real questions that parents deserve to have answers to on this debate. All right. It got even worse than that. Patterson also tried to use sexual assaults on campuses as justification for using tax dollars for private schools. Listen to this. If you strip the ESAs out of this bill, is it your opinion that a sexual assault survivor on the campus of a public school, that that girl's siblings have to remain in that school and attend that school where the sexual assault happened because the parents don't have a choice to take their child somewhere else? Is that your opinion? No, it's not my opinion. So they, they, if this amendment goes on, they will not have an education savings account to help that family choose another option. Is that right? They will not have an educational savings so, account. So the state is going to not give them any help to choose another education program after a sexual assault sur- state, uh, happened on a school campus. Now, Representative Patterson also, Jeremy, mentioned that school safety is important, but he went out of his way to, after saying all that about sexual assault and molestations on campuses, he went out of his way to not bring up examples of kids at public schools being gunned down mercilessly like they were in Uvalde. I didn't hear him say anything about school shootings, which leave the bodies of children strewn about classrooms. I wonder why he didn't say that. Now, you might say, Scott, that's ridiculous. A school voucher wouldn't do anything to fix that. And that would be the point. The school voucher wouldn't do anything to fix the deal with the sexual assaults either. Those should be prosecuted, of course, and dealt with. Uh, but it's all these straw man arguments, Jeremy, that all over the place where they can't win on the uh, on the budget argument. Then Patterson moves over to boys and girls restrooms. Then it's about sexual assaults. Um, and of course, all of those things should be dealt with the way that they're usually dealt with uh, through law enforcement. Uh, you know, and taking care of those children. Uh, Representative Rainey, in responding to that, said, of course, it, it hurts him when a child is damaged. But a school voucher, that's a completely different uh, topic. It's a completely different subject. And and just to put a bow on that, when all of that wasn't working, when, when the whole argument about uh, sexual assaults and the argument about uh, some of the other things that Patterson brought up, when that wasn't working, he just went right back to the bathroom argument. So if a school district has boys in the girls' locker room, which they can do, and I disagree with that policy, then you're telling me that those parents are locked into that school district. Members, let's please retain some decorum here in the Texas House. Please remain from outbursts, including the gallery, which I will not hesitate in clearing the gallery if it happens again. Speaker Dade feeling there, saying people need to behave control themselves. And then right after that, uh, Patterson was basically cut off uh, because the time ran out. Uh, they have you know time limits for different debates in the House, and the time ran out for his questioning of Representative Rainey. And then Patterson was upset that he didn't get to ask more of his just fascinating questions. Um, and then I had someone say, well, that's what happens to Democrats in the House. They get cut off. Uh, and then they can't ask their questions. Um, I would think that that'd be a better argument if Jared Patterson hadn't been the guy during the immigration debate debate to be the one to move that they cut off debate uh, in the middle of the thing and not allow Democrats to answer, you know, ask, ask their questions. Um, I think it's worth saying that for someone like Patterson and some other Republicans who are the supporters of school vouchers, Jeremy, for those who are maybe in their first, second, third terms, um, this is probably the first time that they've been on the losing end of a big vote like this. 
those Republicans always right. They don't they don't even really have to make arguments, get up on the microphone. I thought it was fascinating to watch that there were no Democrats asking questions. This was all Republicans arguing with each other throughout this entire thing. I think, in fact, I was there on the floor and I saw so it looked like some Democrats might want to get up and ask them some questions. And I think the other Democrats said, no, 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 no. This is their fight. This is the Repu- this is the Republicans fighting with each other. Let them have at it, uh, and they did. They went at it, you know, at each other's throats for uh, for quite a while there before that very de- that just decisive vote with twenty one Republicans siding against the governor. Um, and you know, some of them are going to get uh, you know the threats of you know of primary challenges that the governor's going to uh, endorse against them. In fact, he did that with one person already, uh, Representative Hugh Shine uh, up from Bell County, uh, who has a, who has a challenger, uh, an upstart candidate against him. So we're going to see where the governor goes with this. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But, uh, but just watching that that intra-party Republican fight on the floor, we hadn't seen that on a major policy proposal like this in quite some time. Yeah, it was interesting too because, like you know, the way the the phrasing of what a you know educational savings account can and can do was certainly like overblown on on a big level, right? It's a, it's yes. not the end all be all. the the one The one thing that they didn't really kind of delve into is like in all those examples, you know, that he kept bringing up, you know, Patterson kept bringing it up. It's like the problem is like. And private schools don't have to accept those ESA dollars from right. everybody. So, like, you know, it's like, you know, not that, you know, Rainey was going to say this, but when they were answering those questions, um, one of the responses could have been, you know, well, if that child is Jewish and trying to go to a Christian private school, no, mm-hmm. you know, they won't be able to do that. Those parents won't be able to kind of pick that, you know, that route in some instances. There are, you know, you know, uh, you know, private schools like the Christian Academy I, I went to with Governor Greg Abbott and one of his rallies in which they do not accept children whose parents do not sign a doctrine saying that they are Christian. And so, you know, if you're a Jewish child or a child of, uh, you know, Muslim, you know, families or, or any number of different faiths. You're not getting into that private school with an ESA. Right. And, and and if you have a special education need, you may not be getting into that private school. They don't have to take you. It's like, so there's all sorts of things that just because the state's saying you're going to have an ESA to take to a private school, you're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to be able to get into that private school. There's still so many other hurdles involved in that and that it really kind of weeds out a lot of you know, the the children who otherwise might want to have that opportunity to go someplace yeah. else. So it's like, you know, I get the idea. Uh, and, and it kind of goes back to the you know idea that Rainey kind of hit on. It's like, if you're doing this for everybody, it's one thing, but mm-hmm. you're not really doing this for everybody. This is going to be a select small group of uh, students who get the chance to use these, you know, tax dollars to help pay for private schools yeah. in some places of the state. Not all, but it's going to cost the entire state a lot more money to pull that off. Yeah, and of course, the private schools have every right to do that. And the reason they have the right is because they are privately funded. That's the, that is the deal. Um, the public schools don't have that option. They have to have open enrollment. Uh, you heard uh, Representative Harrison say that you know sometimes if a parent wants to take their kid from one ISD to another ISD, there are times when sometimes when those schools have not accepted the transfer, that does happen. But 100% of the time, the private school has the option of just saying no for any reason or no reason. 
it's a private school. They can they can they can accept whoever they want or not because it's a private school. And that and this is one of the um, uh, things that is kind of under the surface about this whole debate. That's one reason that a lot of operators of private schools don't want school vouchers because they fear that eventually, if they're accepting tax dollars, the government's going to start telling them who they have to accept at the school and what they have to teach in the school and that they would have to have the same testing requirements that uh, are, that uh, you know that the public schools have to deal with and all of that and none of those things are in the proposal from representative Buckley or from Senator uh, Brandon Creighton, who I mentioned, the chairman of the of the uh, Senate Education Committee, um, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, Governor Abbott, no one who is in favor of this has proposed anything that has to do with more requirements for what private schools have to do if they accept tax dollars. Yeah, it, yeah, you could feel the nervousness for a lot of the private schools when one of the provisions in this, you know, package of, you know, you know, voucher legislation included, you know, testing children, you know, before they go into the private school through like a start test and then testing them later on too to see how they're doing. It's like that type of accountability, private schools haven't had to deal with. They don't have to test you on the STAR test or any other test if they don't want to. Uh, but this would have given anybody who takes those dollars then to be, you know, under this, you know, potential threat of, you know, people testing these kids and maybe seeing that, you know, if they're not progressing, that becomes kind of a big public story, right? And it's like, what a dangerous thing for some private schools to maybe have the state suddenly meddling into mm-hmm. just kind of what their, you know, what their progress has really been. We don't really know the progress of mm-hmm. what's happening in private schools. You know, it's like you hear, like, you can hear anecdotally, oh, you know, my kid did really well once we transferred them, but we don't have any, like, empirical data like the public schools have to deal with that shows you just kind of how that star test has progressed with every private school or every homeschool kid out there. We just don't know, you know, what that answer is. Are they progressing at the same rate as public school kids? We don't know. No clue. Right. Um, Bizarre coverage of this on Fox News Channel. Uh, And I I say it's, it's bizarre. It's only strange if you actually know what happened. So we laid out everything that happened for you. Now I want you to hear what was said on Fox News Channel. Uh, The public education chairman, Brad Buckley from Colleen, Texas, uh, he was on Fox and Friends on Monday. um, And here's how they brought him on the air and, and introduced the whole topic. So I know this was rejected by the House, but now the House is saying that they will revisit it. What do you expect and why did they reject it? So let me just take a second here to say that they're not bringing it back up. The, the news anchor on Fox acted as if they're going to revisit this. In fact, the exact opposite happened, and I hadn't seen this in a long time, Jeremy. I'm I'm slowing down to remember if I had ever seen it before. Someone who has been um, interacting and observing the Capitol uh, for about 35 years told me they've only seen it about three times, where what happened was the House took a vote on an amendment, and in this case it was the one to – to kill school vouchers. And then as soon as the amendment was voted on, they took another vote to basically say that as long as we're debating this bill, we're not going to talk about that again. Because what can happen, dear listener, during one of these debates is there can be lots of amendments offered on a bill. And let's say, you know, after they took that vote on vouchers, maybe two or three hours later, somebody might say, hey, let's go back to that and reconsider it. Can we can we do that? And the, sometimes they will. In this case, they took a decisive vote right after the vote to kill vouchers, and they voted again 
to say, we're not going to do, allow for that, that no one can bring this up again as long as this bill is on the floor. So they're not revisiting it. In fact, they voted to not revisit this, this whole thing. Um, so I'm going to add this as well. Buckley himself said this bill is basically dead. He told some reporters on that day that the vote happened. He said, yeah, I, I did send the bill back down to a committee. Basically, it's a dead bill, so I had to do something with it. So that's, so that's where he's at. He said he wasn't going to have any more hearings on it, have any more discussion on it. So here's his answer about why he feels some of his fellow Republicans in the House did not like the voucher proposal and voted to kill it. Well, I believe that uh, I believe there was not a clear understanding uh, and it became a either or proposition. You know, you can support public schools like I do, but also uh, support parents' God-given right uh, to be the primary decision maker in their in their children's life and in their education life. And uh, we need to keep telling that story. I'm pretty sure there was not much misunderstanding about this proposal in the House, Jeremy, because this was probably the most closely scrutinized proposal of the year because this has been the governor's top priority. And that's part of, you know, that's the big reason that this has not worked out. Um, and it goes right back to what we were talking about before, which is, yes, you can do both. You can fund both when you have a record budget surplus. But if, you know, in later years, when you have deficits, that's going to change. Um, so we talked about that enough. But let me let me bring up what the governor's doing here. Um, he has now, uh, in, right after that vote, he got what he wanted as far as the vote. And how many times did we say, uh, you know, that in that there was a vote? He didn't get the vote he wanted. How many times did we say on this show that if he gets the vote, it won't go the way that he would want? Well, we said that a lot. That was the, you know, this was not a hard prediction because I can count and you can count. We knew what, we knew what the vote was previously and what the dynamic was in the House. I would say in a large sense, the governor may have changed the politics around this because there's so much more pressure on the House members and all of that, but he hasn't cha changed the fundamentals of the issue. And he may, he may only be able to do that through doing what you have pointed out was the way that Kim Reynolds did it as the governor in Iowa, where she wanted to pass a school choice, a school voucher bill. And what she had to do was go campaign against Republicans in the primary and beat some of them and replace candidates with her candidates who would vote for her proposal, right? So the governor has every opportunity to do that now. Um, you know, if he wants to go on and have campaigns and do it, quote, the hard way, which is what he said he was going to do, do this the hard way. Um, he, he can do that now. And there's no, I can't see any reason for the governor to keep the legislature in session for the rest of the year because that vote is not going to change. In fact, it might get even worse for him because right now you have some members coming out and announcing their retirements, that they're not coming back. I think that one of the messages that the governor could take from some of the rural Republican uh, retirements is that those people are completely dug in and that for the remainder of their time in office, which is all the way through next year before the next legislature is sworn in after the elections next fall, um, those votes are going to stay the same. They're not going to move at all. They have no reason to move at all. They're dug in. Uh, he has made his point. He got his vote. He now has his list of, you know, of, of those representatives who have displeased him about this issue when it comes to school vouchers. Right after the vote in the House, he started to make some endorsements of different incumbents. And he has now endorsed against a state representative uh, also from uh, the Colleen area, from Bell County, uh, Hugh Shine, who is an anti-voucher Republican. The governor came out and endorsed uh, Hugh Shine's opponent. Um, and he may do some more of that. How much he's really going to get involved in the campaigns, I'm not sure. I was talking with some uh, conservative activists over the last couple of weeks 
who said that they really doubt that he's going to get all that involved, that he'll do his endorsements, that he'll put his name on different candidates, uh, but that he's not necessarily going to get out there and campaign for all these people. And for him to really move the needle on it, he would have to spend some of his campaign cash to help these candidates. And quite frankly, Jeremy, he's been pretty stingy about that in the past. Yeah, it's interesting because like he he, look, I, I definitely feel like he has some kind of momentum like early on in the year when he started to talk about this issue. There was a lot of energy behind it. Uh, he got a lot of like uh, movement going, had the rallies going, got some national attention out of it. So he kind of got like the burst out of it. But this is like one of these occasions where like, you know, you could go too far on this. Okay, he got the vote now. And if he keeps pushing ahead on it, it's like, I'm going to totally rip this off from an American Aquarium song. But like, you burn too long, you flicker and you die. Just like, you know, it's like on this issue, it's like, mm-hmm. does he want to do that? Does he want to go to the point where like, he just keeps coming them, bringing them back for the same thing over and over again to watch this keep going up in flames? You take that momentum and that feel that you had and that energy you had at the beginning of the year and you start turning it into a negative you know it's like it's like and so if he does call a fifth special session and now let, let's talk about how unique that would be you know that if he calls a fifth special session like you know i went through the history like you know we haven't had a special session called in december in the history of the state except for once mm-hmm. only one time did somebody say we're going to have one in december and that was dolph briscoe and he was so apologetic he was in it was 1973 he goes out there and he's just apologizing to these members for having to call them back but they had to reduce the speed limits because we were in mm-hmm. the middle of that energy crisis i was just a baby oh, yeah. i was not there for the speech but <laughs> uh but certainly uh like like it's a rarity to make these guys sit in session during yep. the christmas holidays and if he right. calls a special session in december we're looking at 30 days so that would cover the Christmas and New mm-hmm. Year's period of time. Yeah. And for what? To watch this issue, again, that he had some momentum early on, right. may the have now hand. overplayed his hand. And like, how much does he want to play this? Like, because you better know you have a victory coming at the end here if you keep pushing on this. Or you can kind of just kind of start like moving away from this issue a little bit and yeah. not tying yourself to the track on this thing one way or the other. Yeah, and you mentioned being in session during the Christmas holidays, potentially. Uh, This is what I wrote at quorumreport.com this week. This is a little tongue-in-cheek, but it makes the point. The headline is, uh, Abbott wages a war on Christmas trees. And the story had to do with the fact that usually in the Texas House, they have this giant 23-foot Christmas tree. It's beautiful. It's majestic. They put all those ornaments on the tree that are designed by constituents of the members of the house in their districts, and um, it's it's a cool thing. And this time around, because they're in session, and I had been you know kind of joking about this for the last couple of months, Jeremy, that I didn't think they'd be able to have that giant tree in the house for security reasons because it would create line of sight issues. The the security folks on the floor of the house have to be able to see everybody at all times, and you can't have this giant tree in the way. So. There was talk that there would be no tree at all, but the staff apparently pushed back on that. And so what they have instead, and people were making fun of this online, I saw it on Twitter and some other places, people were making fun of the fact that there's a much smaller tree in the house. It's a 12-footer that that will be sort of centrally located in the house on the house floor, and there will be two smaller trees that are seven, seven feet each, 
and those can be used for photo opportunities. Um, but to this whole idea of the, the governor kind of being the Grinch, like you met, you pointed out with Briscoe, it had to do with a serious issue about and a, more of an emergency kind of issue, right? What the Constitution says is that the governor can call special sessions on, quote, extraordinary occasions, close quote. It does, and th- that's open to interpretation, of course. It doesn't say that the governor will call these special sessions for his pet projects, which is what this seems to be, right? This is not an emergency. They don't have to, you know, they, they don't have to do this right. He could come back in the next regular session and just try again. Uh, he could st- he could start fresh. And in fact, he might have the momentum that you're talking about. But with the smaller tree, Jeremy, some people were comparing it to the sad little tree in a Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> and I had it on good authority that, and this was reported to us at Quorum Report by some of our sources, that when Abbott's top staffers were confronted recently about concerns of interfering with the holiday plans of members of the House and Senate and legislative staffers, uh, that the response from Abbott's office was basically, well, that's not our problem. Well, it is your problem at some point if you're really trying to do this, right? If you're really trying to work with people, you're not going to be pissing them off during the holidays, making them cancel their travel plans, stand around at the Capitol doing nothing to only hold potentially the same vote again by which your voucher proposal would die. But I did write this at the end of the column on uh, Tuesday. At this point, some of the members of the legislature might consider it a Christmas gift from Abbott if he would just move on to campaigning against them rather than keep them in Austin standing around doing nothing. Yeah, and just, you know, I, w- I wish I had found a clip of Dolph Briscoe's speech so we could have played it here so you could, you know, hear just kind of like – He was sorry it, about it. Yeah. This was seriously emergency. You know, it's like, you know, this was like, you know, literally at that point, there were gas pumps going dry in Austin, Texas. You know, people kind of knew like there was a serious gas shortage. You know, this OPEC was really messing with, you know, oil prices in America. And it's like, and so it's like you could see there was like, there was no other choice but to call a special session in the middle of December. They were in and out and, you know, real quickly, they gave the Mm -hmm. governor what he wanted. Boom, they were gone. The session was closed within three days. Uh, But, you know, this is just not one of those cases, right? It's hard to kind of make the case that this is an emergency. If we don't pass this now, you know, it'd be one thing if they wanted to frame around, oh, by the way, this package includes pay raises. And I really Mm -hmm. want pay raises to the teachers for Christmas. Like if you made that case, Boy, you could really, you know, maybe sell people on the idea. But the thing is, he's already said that it's, it's not he won't take that pay raise legislation without the vouchers. Mm-hmm. It's like he's made it, you know, one thing now. It's like and so like if if you you know, you've seen it on Twitter a lot, you've seen it in social media. I've heard people say, well, well, can't they still pass the legislation to give the pay raises? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. they could. But it wouldn't get through the Senate, and it probably wouldn't get through Governor Abbott's veto yeah. pen. Right. It's like nobody's willing to take that risk anyhow. And so, yeah, that bill is sitting there, and it's just you know going nowhere in committees mm-hmm. because the voucher component has not passed. Now, the legislators also have some responsibility for this, uh, Jeremy. I was talking with some of them on the floor of the House uh, earlier this week um, when uh, they were standing around wondering what the governor is going to do next. And it feels like uncharted water. It feels like, um, you know, this is this is new territory for us. And I think that it feels that way because this legislature has never said no to Abbott about one of his big priorities, ever. 
So how do you, how do you know how the guy's going to react when he's never been put in that situation? It had been the case previously with Governor Bush, with Governor Perry and others, that sometimes they would have a priority that the legislature was against. I'll give you an example. Governor Perry issued an executive order on HPV vaccinations years ago. You remember this? He, he, yep. he was going to uh, require that all school-age girls in Texas had to get the HPV vaccine. And social conservatives had a fit about that. They couldn't believe this. They said that it was the governor uh, encouraging promiscuity which of course I think is silly and people would not argue. I don't think even some of those same people would argue that now, but the legislature came in and immediately passed something to override him on that such that he couldn't do it. Um, the governor at that time, uh, Governor Perry wanted to build a series of toll roads all over the state. Do you remember this? It was called the Trans-Texas Corridor Proposal. Never happened. He, uh, the grassroots of the, of the Republican Party was so against this. You know, they formed different groups, uh, you know, to, to fight uh, what they called, you know, Perry's government overreach and that he was going to double tax us all on our roads all over the state. They fought him about it. And the legislature did not want to go along with that either. Um, with Governor Bush, you've pointed out that when he tried to push even a limited school voucher proposal, that they said no, right, to him. Now, that was when he had a you know, had Democrats to deal with, a majority of Democrats to deal with. But the legislature at that time would push back and they would push back during Perry. But ever since Abbott's been in office since 2015, it doesn't matter what stupid or hateful thing he asked for, they give it to him. Whether it's this immigration crackdown that, they, that we talked about, you know, on shows past, you know, just here in the last few weeks, um, whether it's $12 billion for border security, that even uh, conservative senators like Bob Hall and Charles Perry have started to question, like, what are we actually getting for all this money? But they still vote for it. They still vote to, you know, let the governor just do whatever he wants with Operation Lone Star. Here's another example. In 2015, I wish I was making this up. One of Governor Abbott's top, if not the top uh, priority for him that year, was a convention of states to rewrite the United States Constitution, that Texas should endorse that idea. And they just did. That, so they always just say yes. So if you always say yes to this dude, and then at some point he asks for something big, which he's now been conditioned to just think that they'll just do whatever he says, and they say no, well, how is he going to react? That's why so many of us who are sitting here supposedly in the know in Austin, the only question people ask me lately is, will he call another special? And I say, well, I don't know. I, As you pointed out, Jeremy, he said that he would. Right. He said during multiple press conferences that he'll call one special session after another. But as we have pointed out here, uh, he said he would only sign a certain kind of property tax reform. But then they passed something different and he signed that anyway. He said that after the property tax reform was passed, that certain bills could be revived. We talk about those again. And those bills have not been brought back by him. Uh, he did say that school finance would not be on the table in the special sessions unless ESAs or school vouchers pass first. He caved on that. He added the, you know, the the school finance, even though the vouchers had not passed, whether it was his threats or his promises, it's all come across as hollow. And as we have said here before, if the members do not fear or love you, it's hard to lead in Austin that way. Yeah. And if you irritate people long enough, it ultimately becomes this numbers game, right? There's 181 of them. And you're not calling just the people who you know, voted against vouchers back. You're calling all of the people, even your allies. If you're going to bring back, you know, people from, you know, Lubbock and, you know, Texarkana and, you know, Jasper County, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like back to, you know, 
you know, Austin for Christmas holidays, you know, th- that starts to add up after a while. And I think, yep. you know, it, what you saw with Perry, particularly at the end, and you saw it, a li- you know, if you go way back, you know, Bill Clement had this problem too. There's a point where the legislature starts tuning you out. You mm-hmm. know, it's just like, and Abbott can't, you know, he does not want to get to that spot. You know, it's like right now they pretty much give him everything like he needs. Like, yeah. like you said, they realize he has a bully pulpit. They're willing mm-hmm. to play ball with him. But you could quickly see if, like, if you have 181 members who are now just starting to blow you off because you just keep calling them back in for the same things over and over again and not showing the leadership that they wish you would. Mm-hmm. It's like that starts to add up after a while. You know, there's a there's a reason why a lot of, you know, states have term limits of uh, two terms <laughs> in mm-hmm. this nation. It's because by, by that third term, you start going a little sour with everybody, including your allies. Right. So you have pointed out, and I think you, 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 you noted this, that weekend after the voucher vote, that a pattern has emerged whenever this issue falls apart on him in Austin. He has a different chess move that he does every time. Where is it that he goes, Jeremy? Oh, the border. <laughs> right. Always to the border. So this was uh, a trip to where? To Edinburgh uh, to meet with former President Trump. And they were going to hand out uh, tacos to people who are serving on the border and stuff like that. You were there. Describe the scene for us. What did it look like? Uh, it was weird. Yeah? <laughs> Let's okay. start with it was weird. Okay. So you had uh, Trump and Abbott uh, handing out uh, – well – there was a Thanksgiving spread for all these, uh, you know, uh, state, you know, state, you know, national guard members mm-hmm. and, uh, DPS, DPS members, people like that right. yeah, who are on the border and they were getting these Thanksgiving meals and they'd get to the end of the line. And depending on what line they were in, either Donald Trump was giving them a taco or Greg Abbott was giving him a taco. And what was funny, like you'd hear a, a soldier go, you know, ask Trump, you know, what's this? And he goes, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> yeah, he's handing him something that's in foil. Like, what yeah, is this fo- thing? He didn't even know what the hell it was. He was just I like, saw, I have no idea. <laughs> I saw some of the reactions to your coverage online because, you know, they were there with the traditional spread of the turkey and dressing and the cranberry sauce and stuff like that, right? And then the taco at the end. And I saw somebody say something like, well, this is kind of a weird combo, but it, but that doesn't mean I'm against it. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, because there was one point where I, when I got there and I was looking at the, the spread and I was like, I saw a big thing of cranberry sauce next to a bunch of jalapenos. I'm like, what are yeah. we doing with this? <laughs> this seems like an, an odd mix of food, but what, what, give it a whirl. You know, I've so, never had cranberry jalapeno sauce on my taco, but, you know, each to each his own. Could be uh, sounds like some kind of hipster taco in Austin, but uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, yeah so they did this event where they handed it out, but then the real story was then they were going to have this mini rally. Yeah, right, and that is where Abbott endorsed Trump for president again, and then after he made that endorsement, of course, his campaign put it out as a campaign video for Abbott. Not for Trump, but it, 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 this kind of tells you everything you need to know. The, the video that Abbott promotes of it seems to be more about Abbott than Trump, as evidenced by Abbott's campaign, putting out this video with some rock and roll music in the background, and Abbott talking about how Trump is the best damn president we have ever had. We need a president who's going to secure the border. We need a president who's going to restore law and order in the United States of America. We need a president who's going to restore world peace. I'm here today to officially proclaim my endorsement for Donald J. Trump to be president of the United States of America again. 
What was the feeling of the rally, Jeremy? Were the people there kind of going wild, going nuts? Uh, was it uh, more toned down than that? What, what was the temperature there? Yeah, it was only about like 200 people in the crowd. And so it wasn't your typical Trump rally for sure. It wasn't like that event a couple of weeks ago in Houston that we told you yeah. all about. Yeah. Uh, it was much more subdued. It was on, it was the back end of a regional airport, you know, and a nondescript hangar. So it, it certainly lacked some of the, uh, it certainly did not have the guitar and drums you just heard there right. in that they, clip. They added that later. <laughs> that was definitely added later. Uh, uh-huh. We did get you know, your traditional, you know, YMCA and Lee Greenwood tunes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, blaring like you do at any Trump event. But uh, but it's, it's really important to kind of note, like, I, I'm glad you brought up the fact that this was uh, Abbott's campaign that put out that video. You know, while Trump took it as an important endorsement and he he clearly was very appreciative of Abbott giving it to him. Right. It's like what this does for Abbott, you know, you, you know, think about, you know, again, I'm always thinking about the next presidential cycle just cuz I'm assuming Trump will eventually hold on to the nomination and run, you know, run against Joe Biden. But you know, so I'm thinking about, you know, what happens in 2028. And what we've already seen is that like if like Trump is off the scene by then, uh, if it's, let's say, you know, <laughs> shocker, he loses again. <laughs> uh, it, it, what happens in the next presidential cycle? Ron DeSantis is not going to get the Trump endorsement. We know that, right? And Nikki Haley probably is about to get herself into that same kind of boat. And so then all of a sudden, you know, Greg Abbott is in the good graces with Donald Trump and has yeah. Donald Trump potentially singing his praises going into a presidential election cycle. That's a pretty big win for Abbott, for Abbott. With, the, yeah. with the Trump audience. You know, and I think there's something to that. I have been one of those who, as you know, I have been skeptical of the idea that Abbott was running for president, that he had presidential aspirations, that he you know, wanted to be on the national scene in that way, at least. I mean, obviously, he wants to be well known as a big Republican state governor and all that. But as far as running for the White House, I was always one of those who said, nah, that's not it. There's something else going on here. I have started to change my thinking about that in the last year, particularly with, particularly because of the school choice uh, initiative that he has proposed and has just been choosing to die on that hill as far as state politics is concerned. But as you know, that's one of those litmus test issues in a Republican primary nationally, right? And all of his themes, and he gets the convenience of this because he's got the biggest Republican border state with Mexico, all his themes are national. It's border security, border security all the time. When the voucher thing falls apart, as you pointed out, he goes straight to the border. But it's these things. It's, It's border security. It's vouchers or school choice, parental empowerment, whatever you want to call it. Um, And on the same day that he said that he had a deal with the speaker about school vouchers, which he didn't, but he said that, and then he got on a plane to Israel, which you talked to to him about later. Uh, And so all those things are national themes and and things that appeal to Republicans nationally in a big way. Um, And I also think that there may be something to Abbott having national – I did not think this before, before just recently having national aspirations sooner than 2028, that there may be, I have had some Republican office holders and Republican operatives in the state say to me that, that, that what he's doing 
it, they're not saying that he's running for vice president, but they're saying he's everything. He's doing everything he would do if you were running for vice president, right? Yeah. He's appearing, appearing with Trump, talking about all these different things that appeal to the national Republican crowd. And to add to what you said about DeSantis, that DeSantis isn't going to get the Trump nod. Think about everybody else who's been on the on the stage at those debates: Nikki Haley, um, Ron DeSantis. Chris Christie, any of those good people, they have all been trashed up one side and down the other by Trump. They are not going to be in his good graces anytime soon. Um, now, that doesn't mean that he can't, you know, make a quick turn on people. He's done that before. Like, remember, there was a time when Rick Perry said that uh, that Trump was a cancer on conservatism. And then later on, he was in Trump's administration. This is part of the uh, topsy-turvy world of politics nationally during the Trump era. Uh, but I do th- – and, and I saw where – a lot of Republicans were saying, and I saw this mirrored in some uh, some coverage in different newspapers around the state. People were saying, you know, the Trump endorsement of or the the Trump endorsement by Abbott is disappointing because it's not necessary, and, and for so many reasons. I mean, I have to think that by the time we get to Super Tuesday, when people in Texas are voting in the Republican primary, that Trump that Abbott's endorsement doesn't matter because Trump's going to have the probably have the nomination wrapped up already anyway. That's not guaranteed, yeah. but that's likely, right? So so the fact, so to your point, this really is more about Abbott than it is about Trump because Trump will always say, yeah, I love having Abbott's endorsement. That's great. Um, but this is really about Abbott being on the, sta- the stage with Trump instead of the other way around. Yeah. And, and, and the importance to know, and, and you kind of hit on it there. It's like, it's not just, you know, maybe I'll run for president someday, but by being in the good graces of Trump, you've also done two other things that I think are super important to understand in presidential politics, at least in the modern era. A lot of people run so they can at least get that, you know, uh, that chance for Trump to offer them a cabinet position sure. you know, if you want it. Like, hey, yeah. you know, like if things get, you know, if you get bored with being, you know, governor, you know, it's like, is there something in the administration that you would like to go to? You've seen it happen time and time again. You, the the number of governors who have gone on to into the administrations of just, you know, Bush, Obama and Trump is is outrageous. It's, it's pretty much it's a, it's a doorstep to whatever you want. And Abbott's going to be in the good graces to ask for that. Now, let's mm-hmm. say he doesn't want to leave. But what that does give him is. Uh, a, a direct line to the White House, you know, and that is never a bad thing. If Trump is the president and Abbott knows he can call him at any time and there's mm-hmm. like a, a camaraderie there, that is very good for your future governing. You could get the president of the United States to come in for something, you know, maybe that he's not as excited about, but he'll come in and do anyhow. Trump is, you know, very transactional in his politics. You mm-hmm. know, he knows that like if you've endorsed him, he remembers it, you know, and then he will remember it down the line. And we'll repay that favor again in some way for Abbott if, you know, if they're both in office at the same time. You know, it's like, again, that's a big if. You know, mm-hmm. I know Biden's numbers are low. Uh, Trump's got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, it's and like if he's going to be, you know, the next president of the United States. If you're Abbott and you're trying to play on the national stage in whatever fashion, if he might, you know, might be a cabinet member or it, it's my understanding is he's always dreamed of being on the United States Supreme Court which you always have the potential that there could be a retirement or, or someone passes away, and then you have that opening. Uh, and as you said, uh, Trump is very transactional, and so is Abbott, by the way. Uh, that is something that could end up happening. It, you know, Given the partisan 
not just the partisan makeup of who's on the field with Biden and probably Trump, in all likelihood Trump, he's got nobody else to kind of get married up to, you know, right? He's not going <laughs> to, for, for, you know, at, at the, at the risk of saying um, what's just painfully obvious, his relationship with Joe Biden's not going to get any better. <laughs> yep. And it, and it almost doesn't even matter what his relationship is with the other candidates who are running for president other than Trump. Right. I mean, he, he can have a good relationship with DeSantis, but does it matter? I mean, he seems like he's flaming out and Nikki Haley. It's interesting that Haley now has the backing of the Koch brothers network, the Americans for, for prosperity and all that. We'll see what kind of grassroots operation they have. But, uh, to me, you'll get this, Jeremy, to me, the Koch brothers endorsing Nikki Haley was kind of like Texans for lawsuit reform, endorsing Eva Guzman for attorney general. But that these are the big money people who wanted to have a certain candidate, but almost nobody cares. It doesn't mean that they're bad people or anything, but the candidacy is just not catching fire. It just wasn't going anywhere. Uh, she didn't make the runoff, and I don't see you know Haley being able to go up against Trump no matter how much money, money that she has. But on the Democratic side of things, we had the vice president, the current one, in Houston this week, and you were there for that. Now, what was this? There was, was a uh, – uh, it was it, how was it billed? It was it was a discussion about various issues there uh, at one of the service centers in in H Town. Yeah, it was a it was at a community center, the senior center, the Hardy Senior Center in uh, just uh, the Greater North Side in Houston. Uh, they were there having this community discussion about uh, basically, you know. Uh, trying to outline issues, uh, healthcare issues particularly, but okay. uh, ways that the Biden administration has been helping the Hispanic community, you know, with their specific policies. So that's kind of how it was built. And so these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion came up, and uh, you know these these you know these attacks on CRT and things like that. Here's part of what uh, Vice President Harris had to say uh, to the crowd there in Houston. We are living in 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 a moment where there is a full-on attack on hard-won freedoms and rights. I mean, you look at what's happening out of a state like Florida where um, they, they started and it's try, they're trying to have it take hold around the country, an attack on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. To make it a bad word, right? To suggest it's a bad thing. To pay attention to who's not in the room and then think about, well, shouldn't we leave the door open and maybe invite some folks in? Paying attention to equity. What about pay equity for women? We're not going to talk about that. I'm We're not going to talk about inclusion. I guess, Jeremy, that's all valid. But um, if you were going to look for examples of things that Democrats would call extremist legislation, you don't really have to look outside Texas. Yeah, it kind of hassles her staff a little bit. Like, you know, does she not get a, a subscription to the Houston Chronicle? She would know that Texas has already ripped DEI out of every public university in the state. It's like she should have like they should have briefed her ahead of time. She could have made her case even more powerful. You know, it's like she could have gone after, you know, uh, you know, Texas Republican extremists and MAGA in Texas for going after, you know, book bans, for going after DEI. You know, mm -hmm. these were all things she talked about. Out, you know, at this meeting, but she kept making it sound like it was a Florida issue and mm -hmm. not as much of a Texas thing. So she kind of missed that a little bit. Uh, but you know, but 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 the point of it was really interesting to me. And, he's, and if you you know follow around with the newsletter, you kind of seen this in the last couple of days. Uh, what was so interesting to me, it was an acknowledgement to me that the Biden administration knows that 
look, their numbers with Hispanics just aren't that great right now. They are right. winning Hispanics over Trump in a you know perceived matchup against you know Trump, but. The problem is, it's like it's not by anywhere close to the numbers they need it to be at. You know, in that in 2020, uh, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump with Hispanics 70 (laughs) percent to 30 percent. You know, it's like it was just lopsided according to the exit polls. Right now, the polls are showing that, you know, they're both under 50 percent. You know, uh, you know, uh, Biden's you know right around forty seven, forty eight percent, depending on what poll you're looking at, just with Hispanic voters. That's not going to get it done. You know, think about the states that are in play. You know, places like Arizona. It's like you better do better with Hispanics if you think you're going to hold that state. Yeah. It's like, and I think that's what like this acknowledgement on the administration's point that they got to get out there and do more. Uh, what was interesting, like, look, and here's a, a, a you know not so secret secret about how you know presidential campaigns operate. They do these public events, and then they do something else that's really mm-hmm. a private fundraiser event. Right, you know, Trump's course. done the same thing. You know, it's yeah. like you know, Trump famously came in and met with family members at Santa Fe from Santa Fe High School. You know, in the hangar of an airport, just so he could call it a, <laughs> a federal event, so the taxpayers yes. would pay for the event, and then he right. drove off to a fundraiser. And it's like so. You know, the expenses for most of that was covered. That is bipartisan stuff. That is standard operating procedure. Yeah, we had this quick, with quick public event, and then we're going to go. You know, uh, have those five hundred dollar a plate or more dinners. Uh, and move on to the next thing. Yeah, and that's what Kamala Harris did at this thing. You know, it's like she went there. You know, she at the Hardy Center. She had that event, but then she, you know, h- hustled off to a fundraiser on the other side of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, think closer to River. You know, to uh, uh, the Post Oak Road in that area of Houston. You know, yeah, she was re- making you know tons of money at this event. But it was interesting. Her speech to those folks was all about trying to keep those donors engaged. And ready to go for next year. As I pointed out in my newsletter yesterday, the uh, the fundraising in Harris County has been astronomical in this last presidential cycle. It's like mm-hmm. it went up. Se- you know, like we, we already give a lot of money in Houston, yeah, of course, mm-hmm. to everybody, Republicans and Democrats. But Huge. it went up seventy percent in the twenty twenty election cycle. Mm-hmm. That's how much federal money got thrown in. Uh, over one hundred and ninety five million dollars was spread around all the federal campaigns. That's more money. That Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina combined will give in an election cycle. <laughs> so, like, you know, sure, they get to vote first, but it's clear we are fueling those primaries with our dollars. And you can see that, you know, even in the general election, it's absolutely critical. And to have, you know, basically Kamala Harris making house calls to donors in Houston just shows how important we are still going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and they're looking at the U.S. Senate map, and it's it's wild to me that the Democratic Party nationally is talking about having to push in on Texas. You know, I mean, you have this state always being an ATM yeah. for Republicans and Democrats. The same as California, by the way. The, the you know the degree to which you're an ATM uh, in some ways is you know uh, related to whether you're a competitive state in the general election. So that you have money just flowing out of Texas and flowing out of California during those elections because, you know, California is going to be the Democrats. Texas is going to be the Republicans. They do a lot of Republican fundraising in California, right? I mean, you 
you got to understand there are more Republicans in California than there are in Texas. There's just way more Democrats, right? Than you know, than you know, it's the other way around. So here you have Joe Manchin dropping out. He's not running for re-election as a Democrat, so that's going to go to the Republicans, right? They can't. Democrats can't win that seat. Uh, what is it? John Tester in Montana. He's got you know tough road to hoe. Um, as somebody who is a Democrat who won a statewide uh, election in a state that was won by President Trump by more than 20 points, I think, yep. something like that. They're running out of the Democrats who can do that. You don't have the testers or the mansions anymore as much, right? And so now you have Democrats looking at Texas as if they might be able to beat Ted Cruz. And I'm thinking, wow, that means that their Senate map for the U.S. Senate looks terrible for Democrats. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But earlier in this event, uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo introduced the vice president and mentioned that she had reached out to her, reached out to Hidalgo uh, when she was seeking treatment for a mental illness earlier this year. This stop here in Houston, Harris County is important because we have our vice president. She does not show up to all of these, okay? I want to make sure y'all know this when we give her a big welcome here soon because it's a big deal that Vice President Harris and the second gentleman are here in Harris County and in Houston. And I said to them, we brought some nicer weather for them so they don't have to acclimatize. She knows we named the county after her. And... And so um, I'm really excited that she's here. She contacted me when I was at the Lindner Center in Ohio. She sent me a voicemail, and we were all listening to it, I and the other uh, folks there with mental illness. And, and she's just been such a source of support for me and really believes in, in everything that folks are going to be talking about today. You know, the Democrats nationally, they really do think of, and you've pointed this out, Jeremy, they really do think of Hidalgo as maybe the most exciting Texas Democrat despite what they're saying about Allred, and he's running for the Senate and everything. And again, we'll come back to that race later. But man, they just love Hidalgo. Yeah, I, and I made the case in the newsletter that, uh, the Texas Tech newsletter, of course, you know, you know, y'all can know how to sign up for that, baby. But uh, the thing is, it's like, like there may not be uh, a Democrat in Texas with better access to the White House right now than Lena Hidalgo. It's like, it's not just that, you know, you know, Harris, you know, Kamala Harris was giving her all kinds of praise during these events too. both of the events, uh, you know, gave her a really good hug, uh, obviously, you know, called her, you know, left messages for her, like she said in that clip. But, you know, uh, Lena Hidalgo has been invited to the White House several times already. You know, it's like she's been up there. She's been added to the Biden uh, Harris campaign as, as an advisor. Uh, so she's got she's got a good in right now with the White House, and I'd just be hard pressed to find many other Democrats who can say they have that kind of relationship. So it just it continues, the, you know, and, and just kind of like we were saying for, for Abbott, it's like that can only be a good thing when you have a you know that relationship with the White House. So if say like if something were to come up where they want to offer her a position somewhere in the next you know mm -hmm. administration, Lena Hidalgo could have it if she just says she wants it. It's like, you know, if she asked for a position, you know, they're going to help her get that if she wanted to yeah. leave Harris County. And things are even more pronounced as far as like, forget about what, just for, for a second, forget about what positions any of these elected office holders might end up in. Because of the polarization and because of, I'm sorry, because of the way that Donald Trump has talked about the way to govern and everything being about personal retribution and all of that, if you're Governor Abbott or any Republican 
office holder and no Democrat. This is the point I was making earlier. Like, you know, Abbott's relationship with Biden almost doesn't matter. They just fight about everything, right? And it's and there are going to be instances where Texas needs federal help with things. Trump has said that, you know, when it came to COVID relief or things like that, that 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 money should only flow to places that voted for him. Right. I mean, it's it's there's this vindictiveness, right? And so for somebody who's a governor or somebody who's a county judge, having those relationships is important also just for doing your job that you're in, right? Because there are often instances where you need help and you need that direct line in to the White House. You need the direct line into the president uh, or the vice president or whoever, you know, whoever it is that you need to get to in certain situations. Uh, and those personal relationships seem to be, it, it, there's always been a version of this, but it seems to be even more pronounced that that you have to have that direct line into people that you have to be able to, uh, I mean, you have to be on the level of just texting them, hey, what's up? And then being able to have a conversation uh, with whoever that is, because otherwise you just get lost in the mix. And there is just so much ugliness out there, bitterness and pettiness. And if you can call somebody your actual friend, like, again, that, there's always been a version of what I'm saying, but it does seem to be magnified. Well, and look how important, like, you know, Harris County is, you know, it's like, yeah, I always love to kind of like stress this. You think of how many people are in Harris County. It's like, you know, in the whole region, you know, Helena Hildago, you know, as the county judge there represents more people than so many states in this country have. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's not even close. Like there's, she governs far more people than like anybody in Montana or North Dakota or South Dakota, or even the bigger states. You start getting into those. It's like just what we, you know, co that comes out of Houston and Harris County. You, she has influence, you know, that is, uh, outsized for what we think of in Texas because like, hey, it's just one city, but it's such a massive city and a lot of votes and a lot of issues that Democrats care about, you know, and so and and it doesn't hurt that she's a young uh you know Latina who is very good on the stage at this point. You know, it's mm -hmm. funny, she's gotten a lot better. You know, she she was definitely rough around the edges when she first kind of, you know, started running, you know, for this position. But mm -hmm. you can you could hear in that clip there's an energy and uh, a, 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 a political skill that has started to kind of develop with her where she's able to really kind of command a room right now. And it's just it's really kind of interesting to see her kind of develop into just somebody that the White House can see value in having a relationship with. Yeah. Can I pull the curtain back on what it's like to be a pool reporter for a yeah. presidential or a vice presidential uh, visit? I have told you before, Jeremy, that my days of doing that are probably over. I am just not impressed with that. Everyone should do it once, you know, at least. If they're in journalism, you should go cover the president. Do it as many times as you want. But everyone should at least do it one time to experience it, right? And I've done it many times. You've done it many times. You did it with you did it uh, there for the Harris event this week. But it's kind of like, dear listener, when you cover the president or you cover the vice president or somebody on the on the on, the, on those levels, um, in some ways it's like a uh, like a music festival. Like you're stuck there and you can't do anything else that day. It's like you're going camping. You you, you go in the morning. They kind of put you in a sealed envelope and you don't get out until they're done with you. And was that was that kind of extra true? <laughs> When you were covering Harris in Houston this week, because they they took you somewhere that was n nowhere close to where you had started, and you had yeah. to figure out your way back. Yeah, it's it's one thing when the events are in the same kind of general vicinity, but yeah. like in Houston during you know 
late afternoon rush hour time guess what yes. you know like right. you know when they take you someplace that's an hour away and they drop you off like this is literally what happened i i was part of the the pool where i was able to go to the fundraiser and kind of yes. be in this you know relatively private event and kind of right. see what she was saying and yeah. you know who was in the crowd you and, know, and just so people great. well just so people know when you're talking about that when you say you're in the pool that means there's like three or four of you right yeah like you're Correct. the print reporter there's a tv camera there may be somebody from radio or whatever, but it's it's three or four, and you, that's it. And you get and you do get that kind of access, but it does mean you have to give up some things, like what you're about to tell people. Yeah, I gave up my car, which is a very sad thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like you know, my 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 beautiful red Damn Mustang it. was parked on an entirely different side of Houston, with me no way of getting back to it. Stranded. <laughs> like I literally had to, you know, get an Uber back to a dark parking lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, next to a ball field that didn't have any lights on where my car had yeah. been stranded. It took me easily an hour and a half to finally get back to where I was going. When I signed up for the pool duty, you know, it's like just so, you know, I, I know, you know, one of the things about journalism is like you kind of make a decision on those things. Sometimes you want to be in the pool just for that extra access to see who's in the room. And mm -hmm. I know enough people in yep. Houston politics where I kind of wanted to see who was around there. Who, who who would I see going in there? So I did see Mayor Turner and I did meet up with Congressman uh, Al Green and, and so many others. You know, Sylvia Garcia, the congresswoman who hosted a lot of these events, mm -hmm. uh, like she was – in immensely involved with everything that was happening. I get to kind of see that up close. And mm -hmm. so that there was a value in that. But what you don't know when you sign up for those things is like, then when the event ends and they say, oh, by the way, we're not taking you back to your car. You're on your own. It's like, what? I don't even know where I am. Because <laughs> they put me in a van. It was kind of like, kind of a kidnapping, right? You know, it's like, they just throw it's you in a like van that. with dark windows and drive you off to some you know, corner of the city and then just drop you off in the middle of the street and say, see you later, buddy. <laughs> so I was able to negotiate for them mm -hmm. to at least take me back to the airport where yeah. Kamala Harris was flying out of. So then I could find an Uber driver, you know, there that would get me, you know, closer to my darkened parking lot. The Uber driver was like, are you sure you want to be dropped off in this neighborhood on this dark street? This <laughs> it's like, no, really, my car is somewhere around here. Yikes. Well, I, I wanted to give people a sense of what, what we have to go through to cover some of these things. And, you know, when you when you cover folks at the presidential level, it's, a, you know, the president, the vice president, cabinet members was really the president and even former presidents. Everything changes about the security. Everything changes about the things you're allowed to do and say and where you're allowed to be and everything. I remember uh, covering former President Clinton and uh, then the first president, Bush, Bush uh, 41. And, um, at that, at that time, you know, I, I was a radio reporter and so I wanted to be able to just put my, my audio recorder up on the podium where they were going to speak. And the secret service guys are like, absolutely not. You know, it's yeah, like, why, what do you think I'm going to, what do you think I'm trying to do? <laughs> I've got my little cheesy recorder. They think it's some kind of a, you know, some kind of a weapon or something. Everything changes. And the whole, uh, the whole dynamic around all that, uh, is, uh, is kind of unbelievable, but, and, and, and not glamorous at all. I know some people are going to hear this and think that, oh, yo, you got to rub elbows with all the important people. Like there's a little bit of that, but a lot of it is just a real pain in the ass, but it, it's what we do to bring you the news.
Yeah, I, I certainly, I, I wouldn't complain about it, except for of oh, course, not having my car. Yeah. But like, so it, it's definitely like, you know, it never gets old being at the cover, you know, the, the president of the United States or the vice president or even the former presidents. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I understand there's a privilege and an access there that most Americans will never have the chance to be in the same room as those folks. So I definitely appreciate that. Uh, but uh, when you're crammed in the corner with your little notepad, you know, trying to figure out how am I going to send a story <laughs> to my uh, my publication and thus also find my car so then I can drive later on in the dead of night back to Austin, Texas. Uh, it just adds a little degree of difficulty to the whole occasion. <laughs> just a little bit. All right. That is enough show for sure. Sign up for Jeremy's uh, newsletter. It uh, comes out for free every afternoon, uh, evening around 5, 30, 6 o'clock, something like that. Uh, the link to sign up is on his Twitter page at Jeremy S. Wallace. It's right there at the top of his Twitter page. You can follow me there as well at Scott Braddock. My thanks to Evan Scherer, our producer. You should uh, subscribe at quorumreport.com and HoustonChronicle.com, and we will see you next time.